I have a question for you guys. Why is it called the Easter egg roll and not Easter egg hunt? Because they roll them. Wait, what does an Easter egg roll even mean? What do you mean rolling an egg? This is what I'm saying. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of dumb. It's for kids, though. Well, it's a White House tradition since 1878. This is what passed for entertainment back in the 19th century. It was temperance. What are you going to do? <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Primary season begins in earnest in just two weeks and will feature plenty of high-profile fights within the two parties. One of the biggest tests will be the sway former President Trump still holds over the Republican Party, and it's a test that Trump has created for himself. He's waded into the fray and endorsed candidates in Republican primaries, including against incumbents, in a way that's unheard of for former presidents. At 538, we're tracking the types of candidates he's thrown his weight behind, and we're going to break down those trends today. One trend has been his endorsement of candidates who've sown distrust in the results of the 2020 election, including candidates who are running for positions that would oversee future elections. So we're going to take a deep dive into what can happen when elections officials themselves believe Trump's big lie and have access to election equipment. And we're going to take a look at a new report from the San Francisco Chronicle in which numerous Democratic lawmakers and aides suggest that at age 88, California Senator Dianne Feinstein's mental acuity has significantly declined and that she is now unfit to serve. Americans say they want upper age limits for people who hold public office, yet our lawmakers are getting older, and the conversation about mental acuity and its messy, sensitive politics persists. So here with me to discuss all of that is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, y'all. Also here with us, elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. And tech and politics reporter Kaylee Rogers. Hey, Kaylee. Hey. So uh, how's everyone doing? Ready for primary season to kick off? I think May 3rd is like the official start of the season. Oh, Galen, don't remind me. <laughs> okay, so not Pregnant looking forward here. to it. <laughs> 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 we, I'm looking forward to it. We just have a lot of work to do, the three of us in particular. <laughs> we do indeed. It's true. It's going to be nonstop. As a preview, we're going to be live blogging plenty of those nights. We'll have reaction podcasts. We're truly back in election season after a little over a year off. You know, of course, we've still talked about elections, but now we're back at it. Pounding the pavement of elections once again. Let's begin with that report from the San Francisco Chronicle. And I'm going to read a couple of the opening excerpts from that piece just to give a sense of the thesis. So it begins, quote, When a California Democrat in Congress recently engaged in an extended conversation with Senator Dianne Feinstein, they prepared for a rigorous policy discussion like those they'd had with her many times over the last 15 years. Instead, the lawmaker said they had to reintroduce themselves to Feinstein multiple times during an interaction that lasted several hours. Rather than delve into policy, Feinstein, 88, repeated the same small talk questions like asking the lawmaker what mattered to voters in their district. They said with no apparent recognition, the two had already had a similar conversation. The article continues, 
Four U.S. senators, including three Democrats, as well as three former Feinstein staffers and the California Democratic member of Congress, told the Chronicle in recent interviews that her memory is rapidly deteriorating. They said it appears she can no longer fulfill her job duties without her staff doing much of the work required to represent the nearly 40 million people of California. So there are numerous accounts in this report of Feinstein not being as sharp as she once was. There are also colleagues, including Nancy Pelosi and Feinstein's fellow senator from California, Alex Padilla, who say she is fine and up to the job. This is obviously a sensitive subject. So let's just begin by teasing out the different facets in the article. What evidence is there for the article's thesis and how has Feinstein responded? So I was trying to make like a pro cons in terms of evidence in the article to, you know, support the thesis that she's unfit for office. And so I think working against this report is the fact that it's all anonymous sourcing, right? That said, they talked to eight people in total. So it's not like they just went to one person, the initial House Democrat who brought this issue to them. And it's also something that's been reported on before. There was a big piece um, in 2020 from the New Yorker's Jane Mayer that touched on this idea of some of the same problems in fact, in the sense that at the time Schumer had come to um, Feinstein multiple times to say, hey, you can't be in charge of the Judiciary Committee. She had been in a committee setting where she asked Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey the same question verbatim back to back without realizing she had done it. So these aren't new allegations. The other thing, though, I think that is kind of Always the question within this, though, is how much of this is politically motivated in the sense of Feinstein, like some other Democratic senators, has kind of been at odds with more progressive elements of the party. We particularly saw that with her handling of Barrett's hearing for the Supreme Court nomination. Progressive Democrats were really unhappy with her performance in that vein. She even um, told uh, Lindsey Graham at the time that this is one of the best set of hearings I've participated in. And that angered both progressive Democrats and just like other Democrats as well. And, you know, there's been staff turnover. Like, I thought that was a pretty convincing element of the piece that things have changed in this office. They painted an image, too, of how often she has to rely on AIDS, how closely sequestered she is. You know, a lot of things done on the Hill, to be clear, are through AIDS. But Feinstein's office seems to particularly rely on them. And honestly, the fact that they didn't really comment on some of the allegations in it and then kind of had a weird flex in like, hey, there used to be senile members of Congress that were older men. They were like talking about um, Strom Thurmond and Robert Byrd, who were well known to have really declined as they aged. You know, that's not really the best uh, flex for the Feinstein camp to make on some of this. And they're not new allegations. So I think overall, I'm curious for Kaylee and Nathaniel's read on this, but this seemed pretty convincing of a problem, even though people, you know, I think somewhat understandably aren't going on the record saying this. While they were anonymous, you know, we did have some information about who these sources were and the fact that it was former staffers who you would assume were quite closely with her, as well as fellow senators and Democrats in particular. So while there obviously is still some political possible reason behind it, it does give a little more weight to these allegations. You know, it's a tricky issue and nothing really in the piece that's described is like a slam dunk, like, oh, definitely, like, there's no question about it. 
she shouldn't be in her position right now. You know, it's a lot of like, well, this happened and normally she's like this, but she acted this way and that seemed unusual to me personally based on my previous interactions. There's nothing that's like a smoking gun. The media has to make judgments about when it's appropriate to raise questions about a politician's health and mental acuity and when it might just be politicking. You know, we've expressed that conflict here. So how should we make those judgments in the press? Is it ultimately not up to us? You know, how should we juggle this conflict? I mean, it's really challenging. So this isn't a perfect analogy, but, you know, we have the Goldwater rule for a reason in the sense that in the 1964 presidential campaign, there was a publication called Fact. It is now, you know, out of business that published this incendiary article that had over a thousand psychiatrists saying Barry Goldwater was unfit for political office and none of them had evaluated him, but it was still, you know, on the record saying all these things. He ultimately lost that election very handily to Lyndon Johnson, but he won the lawsuit for defamation around this kind of armchair psychiatry. And so I think it's a tricky thing that we saw kind of go out the window with both um, media analysis of Trump and his cognitive decline and Biden in the 2016 and 2020 election. It's just ultimately we're not basing any of this on cognitive tests the candidates are taking. And at the same time, it's tricky in the sense of, well, okay, say they had a doctor evaluate them. We all remember Ronnie Jackson, who was President Trump's doctor, and just, yes, he's perfectly physically fit and ready to go. You know, there's a the reason why FDR back in the day concealed that he was handicapped. And there was a time in which the press abided by that. I think it's a really challenging component to measure the cognitive ability of a candidate. You know, the former VP Dan Quayle used to always have little, you know, misslips in what he would say. Same thing with George W. Bush. Did that mean they were like physically unfit for office? I think it's ultimately something where it's like you can report on what the candidates are saying or not saying, as they did with like Feinstein in that hearing with Jack Dorsey, showing that she repeated the same question verbatim without really recognizing that she did that. And you have to let the evidence, I think, speak for itself at that point, because there is no way to kind of answer this question on mental fitness. The Chronicle, I respect them as an institution, and I believe that they did their due diligence. There could be things that they were told on background or off the record that they couldn't include in the story that made them feel more confident in running it based on what they were able to publish. I don't know if that's the case. I'm just saying as a reporter, sometimes there is more than you're able to include in the story. And this, you know, as we mentioned, this is not a brand new thing that no one had ever considered before. This is something that's kind of been whispered about, rumored about, talked about for a couple of years now, at least. And the fact is, it hasn't been a major news story. It's not like every other week there's another anonymous source coming forward. So this was something that was kind of a long time coming. They had a number of high-profile, you would think, reliable sources giving their evidence. And at the end of the day, the, the story itself doesn't make a determination. It doesn't say that the paper or the reporter thinks one thing or the other. So here's what some people close to her have said, and here's why they said that. So I think that that allows voters to make up their mind about what to do with that information. Yeah, I want to get to how voters are making up their mind with information like this. But to the immediate specifics of this situation, the article reads, quote, the episode was so unnerving that the lawmaker, this is the initial lawmaker in the opening, who spoke to the Chronicle on condition they not be identified because of the sensitivity of the topic, began raising concerns with colleagues to see if some kind of intervention to persuade Feinstein to retire was possible. Feinstein's term runs through the end of 2024. 
Nathaniel, what are the circumstances under which Feinstein could be replaced before her term is up in 2024, if the people around here were actually like this lawmaker seeking to do so? Well, it would be very extreme, and I don't think it would ever happen. But basically, the one option that people who aren't Feinstein have would be to expel her from the Senate, which would require a two-thirds vote. That would never happen. This has only really happened for treason and support of the Confederacy, historically. Right. right. <laughs> Fifteen times total and never for age. Yeah, it's it's the kind of thing that's like, you know, tantamount to impeachment, and you wouldn't impeach someone for being too old. But of course, I think a much more possible scenario, especially if articles like this keep on coming out, if they're true and, and she's not able to support the workload of being a senator, it's possible that she would herself resign. Um, and in that case, of course, you would have a new senator being appointed. So in California, the governor would appoint a senator until the next general election. Of course, currently the governor of California is Gavin Newsom, a Democrat. So he would likely appoint a fellow Democrat. He would he would definitely appoint a fellow Democrat. So it's not like Democrats' majority in the Senate would be endangered by this. Um, and then there would be another election. If this were to happen this year, it would there would be a special election in 2022 to fill the remaining two years of Feinstein's term. And I'm sure a lot of ambitious California politicians would be interested in that post. If she were to resign after the 2022 election, then the seat would just be up normally in 2024 with the appointees serving the two years in between. And because this has been discussed in articles dating back a few years, speculation about the politics of replacing Diane Feinstein have already been talked about in the media and by sort of Newsom himself in some sense. What is that dynamic like? I mean, didn't Newsom last year... Didn't he say that he would replace her with a black woman? He like specifically yes. made that promise. And the people were like, what are you talking about? Replace her. And he was like, ah, and kind of like backtracked a little bit. Like, I'm not saying she's going anywhere. I just meant like theoretically if she did. Of course, notably, he replaced Kamala Harris in the Senate by appointing Alex Padilla. And Kamala Harris was the only black woman in the Senate. And so it did piss off some people that he didn't pick another black woman to replace her. And I think that's where that promise came from. Right. And it was also in the lead up to the recall election. And it was several <laughs> months before um, September, but, you know, it was on MSNBC. So Democrats watching, you know, a promise to then nominate a, a black woman to the Senate to replace Feinstein. So let's take a step back here. These are the specifics of the situation. That's what the article lays out. This is what the politics would be like. There's not all that much I think we can say beyond that when it comes to Feinstein's specific circumstances. But how, in general, does the age of our current Congress compare with past Congresses? And how does it compare to the U.S. population as a whole? Congress is definitely getting older. So according to data from CNN, the average age of a member of the House right now is 58.3. And the average age of a senator is 63.9. And those numbers have been pretty steadily on the increase for the last uh, several decades. But I actually think the best analysis of this came from Christopher Ingraham, then of the Washington Post uh, several years ago, actually, I think it was from back in 2014. But he, to your question, Galen, looked at 
this trend relative to the age of the U.S. population. And he found that the U.S. population as a whole is getting older. So like back in the 19th century, the average age of a member of Congress was like in the mid 40s, but it was because people just weren't living as long. And now people are living very long and you have people serving in office and staying in their jobs in general for longer. And so and when you look at it as relative to the rest of the population, how old is Congress? They're actually getting younger relative to the rest of the population, but that's mostly, of course, because the population as a whole is getting older faster than Congress is getting older. You know, that's an interesting point, Nathaniel, on like the age. One thing I was really struck by, though, is at least in the House, both parties can kind of set up how they want to do their committees and Democrats do it based on seniority. That hasn't always been the case, but has since like 2006. And sure enough, looking at that CNN data, there is a partisan split in age where House Democrats are significantly likely to be 65 or older compared to House Republicans. In the Senate, though, um, thinking about Feinstein, you know, who we've been talking about here, it's actually Senate Republicans. They're more likely to be older than Senate Democrats. Yeah, it's funny, right, Sarah, because you'd expect that Democratic members of Congress would be younger because, you know, they appeal to younger voters more. But it is actually the opposite, at least in the House. Well, you can imagine for voters, too, if you have a member of the House who has that seniority and, you know, has all this sway and is on these committees, you don't want to give them up and replace them with some newcomer freshman. You know, you're going to keep voting for them probably if they're your party. Totally. I, you know, I think like a question embedded in all this, right, is like, why are voters continuing to elect older members of Congress? And I think it's what Kaylee's saying that they're voting for incumbents most of the time. And I realize like the presidential election, in particular 2020, is kind of an exception to that. But at least on the congressional level, it's not like someone like Feinstein is running for office for the first time, right? It's somebody who's been in there for years and years and years. Right, right. And you can imagine if there was an open seat, and someone in their late 80s ran for the first time, they probably wouldn't be as successful. Right. Yeah. Unless they run for president, apparently. <laughs> I, yeah, that's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> One of the more striking stats that I found in all of this uh, was that Americans over the age of 65 make up 16% of the population, but they make up half of U.S. senators. And so we have, like, the average age in general, and yes, it's gotten older, but when you sort of look at what percentage of the Senate is made up of senior citizens, it's fully half. As I mentioned, we can't necessarily speak about specific situations, but we can talk about at a population level how people's ability changes as they get older. What can we say empirically about how people's mental acuity changes? I think, and we saw this in the reporting from the Chronicle as well, in that some people were saying, I talked to Feinstein and everything was normal, but then the next day, everything was wildly off. And you do see studies um, that show that, you know, people in their early to late 70s are just likelier to have dementia or problems, you know, recalling memory. And we definitely saw that both in display in the Chronicle article, but then the one from the New Yorker as well. And it was something that came up in the presidential election between Trump and Biden as well. You know, the older you get, there's just a higher likelihood to have memory issues. And, you know, when you have the nuclear codes when you're president, that raises questions of, you know, are you able to do the job? And I think here in the example of Feinstein, there were just a lot of questions of should she be chair of the Judiciary Committee if she, you know, can't remember that she's asking someone the same question. It's highly individual as well. You know, my husband's grandmother is turning 94 this year, and she's sharp as a tack. <laughs> she's smarter than I am. 
So it's very individual. At the same time, we as individuals, regular people are not necessarily great at like diagnosing mental cognition impairment. Somebody could forget something. Somebody could just be busy. Somebody could be stressed out. I mean, they made a note in the story of, of mentioning that all of these anecdotes came from prior to, to Feinstein's husband passing away. Because I think that a lot of us could understand that you might be stressed or a bit distracted if you're grieving and dealing with that. But it's hard to sort of negotiate as just a regular human being. Like, is this a red flag or is this just, you know, yes, she's a little older and, and maybe this has been a busy day and she forgot she asked that question already. It's really hard to tell just as lay people. I think it also speaks a little bit to some of the stigma around aging and memory loss and dementia and all of those things that in our society we we have. Like a, a, the fact that even talking about this is so taboo and such a, a shameful thing when it's so common, I think just complicates the issue more than maybe it even needs to be. It would be great if we could be more transparent and forthright about these conversations and be like, look, this is something that happens to a lot of older people. And it doesn't mean that they did anything wrong or it's no reflection on them or that they need to be ashamed of it, but that it's it's a reality. Yeah. There was a line in the New Yorker piece that stood out to me where it was saying, you know, anyone who's tried to take the car keys away from an elderly relative knows how hard it can be. And, you know, in this case, it wasn't just about the car. It was the U.S. Senate talking about Feinstein. And I think that's such an interesting point, Kaylee, that like we all know that this is an issue, but there is this element of defensiveness, autonomy when it's somebody you're talking about and questioning whether they're fit for office in this case, fit to drive a car. And it is just inherently, I feel like, such a complicated conversation to have so with someone. And at least what we're seeing play out in Congress is, you know, older members don't necessarily retire. And then, you know, it's not necessarily then a, a hit job to want to have them be out of office. But it's like, how do you have that conversation constructively? And I think some of that has to fall to the party leadership. And it certainly doesn't seem to be happening, at least with Feinstein and Democrats now. Yeah. Kaylee, to your point about this just being widespread issue, our intern Emily Vineski dug up some data on dementia and cognitive impairment as we age. And a study from the National Institute of Health found that one in seven Americans age 71 and older has some type of dementia. So when you get older than that, so in the range of 85 and on, the prevalence of mild cognitive impairment is 40% prevalence for men and 19% for women. So this is just like a part of life. And politicians being humans are also subject to this. I mentioned at the top that Americans, the majority of Americans, want there to be some sort of upper age limit for politicians. In a YouGov poll, it was 58% of Americans who said that. And when asked following up, where do you think the age limit should be? The most common age limit was 70. Do we think there's any likelihood that there will be changes made to have an upper age limit for politicians. Of course, you know, for president, at least we have a lower age limit. In the House, if Republicans win, yes, they have said that they want to impose term limits in Congress. And as I was saying earlier, you know, generally speaking, like Republicans already do have term limits in the House for their committees. And now they're saying they want to expand that for Democrats as well. And that would really shake up the Democratic caucus. You know, you're talking Maxine Waters, she's gone. 
Benny Thompson would no longer, you know, be housing the Homeland Security Committee. There's a lot of ripple down effects if that were to happen. And generally speaking, both parties have been allowed to set their own rules. So this is definitely Republicans trying to up the ante. I think there would be maybe some support for that, but it's also very much a political power play that I think reflects some of the stuff we've seen with Democrats pushing to, you know, strip someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments or Paul Gosar. Well, so the issue, of course, Keelan, is that the qualifications for serving as a member of Congress are enshrined in the Constitution. And so it would require a constitutional amendment to impose term limits or to impose an upper age limit. And I think in our polarized environment right now, a constitutional amendment is pretty much off the table. Even something like this that could theoretically have bipartisan support, I just think it's going to be hard to sync up Democratic and Republican legislatures to approve the same thing. I think it would take probably a real shock to the system, such as an old president like Biden basically losing his mind and refusing to step down and something like that, where it becomes a clear and present danger or reason to both parties to be like, we want to make sure this doesn't happen again. Yeah. Sarah, you brought up this question, but you know we're looking at the possibility of a rematch of Trump-Biden in 2024. Given what Americans say they want from their politicians, which is you know, an upper age limit. Other people involved in politics, commentators have even called for things like a cognitive test for people who want to be president or serve in office otherwise. Does it seem like the ages of Biden and Trump, which of course Biden is the oldest president to ever be elected to a first term and Trump is the second oldest president to ever be elected to a first term, would it disadvantage that possible rematch? Like, Is this something that voters say they care about, but just isn't all that salient when the rubber hits the road? What's going on? I think in part, it goes back to what Kaylee was saying in the sense of someone's mental abilities. It really varies from individual to individual. But say it's the Trump-Biden rematch that we're all kind of, you know, loosely anticipating in some way or another. If one of them or both of them show a real lack of mental acuity and then do that enough times, I do think that factors in to how voters view the candidates. Obviously, at the end of the day, if I'm a Republican and my only choice is Trump, I'm probably not going to vote for Biden and vice versa. But do either men make it to, you know, the ultimate contest without someone much younger posing a viable challenge? I think that's a real question at this point. Biden has not said whether or not he'll run again. And No, he said he plans to. He said he plans to. Okay. It's hard to see that following through, right, though? He would be how old in his... 80s. I think he'd be 86 at the end of his second term, which is just very difficult to imagine. Right. It's very old. So you were talking about how Americans might perceive them. It's interesting, during the 2020 election, the large majority of Americans said that they thought that Biden was mentally fit to be president. Now it's a slim majority say that he's not mentally fit to be president. And I'm curious, that may just be from observing him do the duties of president, but it might just also be a response to him now being broadly unpopular. It's kind of hard to disentangle the two, perhaps. Yeah, I think it's really hard to disentangle the two. I mean, the one thing I will say, it's hard to remember now, but, you know, in the lead up to the 2020 election, it was like, is Biden in the basement? He just wasn't making public appearances because of the pandemic, right? So I do think there is like some bit of an argument to make that he wasn't in the public's eye in the same way that he is now. Mm -hmm. Now, to your point, Galen, like, 
it's also a different role. He's president. He's deeply unpopular. How much of that is people, you know, just reflecting their overall dissatisfaction with Biden? And I don't want to rule that out. But I do think, you know, he as a candidate had a very controlled persona that he presented to the public arguably still does that as president. You know, he hasn't done a ton of sit-down interviews, a ton of public appearances where he's speaking off the cuff. And when he has, you know, it's been like, let's get Putin out of office. So, you know, maybe there are real reasons why people are doubting Biden's abilities. Then again, maybe it's just this broader unpopularity. I mean, attacking Biden's mental acuity has been a standby for Trump and his supporters. Like in the circles I frequent online for my reporting, calling Biden senile is just like par for the course. And they'll find any clip of him misspeaking or a slip of the tongue and slow it down to half speed and talk about how he's completely unfit for office. That's a, a recurring kind of theme and sort of mode of attack against Biden. And the fact of his age doesn't do him any favors in response to those attacks. All right. Well, given, Nathaniel, what you said about the likelihood that upper age limits are actually enacted for lawmakers, it is in the voters' hands. So we, we will leave it there. Let's move on and talk about Trump's endorsements. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen? Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Former President Trump is wading into the 2022 Republican primaries far more aggressively than he even did in 2020. So far this cycle, he's made 101 Senate, House, and gubernatorial endorsements, compared with only 42 at this point last election. As I mentioned, throughout the primary, 538 is tracking Trump's endorsements, both to see the direction he is pushing the party in through the types of candidates he endorses, and to gauge how much sway he has amongst Republican voters based on whether his chosen candidates win. His most high-profile recent endorsements have been of Mehmet Oz in the Pennsylvania Senate primary and J.D. Vance in the Ohio Senate primary, both of which have been somewhat controversial moves 
within the state Republican parties in those states. So, Nathaniel, the last time we checked in on our Trump endorsement tracker was last year, and he was endorsing plenty of challengers to Republican incumbents, something that is very rare for a former president to do. Has his approach changed at all since then? Yes, he's still doing his um, kind of revenge endorsements, but he has definitely started to pad his numbers a little bit. So I can pull up the exact statistics. But when we wrote an article, our then intern Mackenzie Wilkes and I back in December, almost half of Trump's endorsements were what we would term risky. So this is an exact proxy for riskiness, but they were endorsements of people who were not running as incumbents and they also were not unopposed in their election. So basically half of Trump's endorsements were kind of, there was doubt in in some form or another about who would win the election, whereas about half, he basically had them in the bag because incumbents almost always win. And of course, people who are uncontested always win. But since then, he has made fewer of these risky endorsements. Only 23% of his endorsements since then have been risky. So he's been endorsing a lot of people who are definitely going to win their primaries. So like somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is, uh, I think, a lot of Democrats and and Republicans even are under the illusion that, you know, maybe she can be defeated, but it's very unlikely. Other very generic House incumbents that, you know, you probably have never heard of, Trump is just endorsing them, and they're almost certain to win re-election. And so that's just going to kind of up his win rate, even as he maybe loses some of these riskier bets. So like, you know, endorsing against Lisa Murkowski or against Brian Kemp in Georgia, you know, these powerful incumbents who could lose, but seem to be favored at this time. You know, you said he's been padding his record by endorsing people who seem guaranteed to win their primaries, which makes it almost sound like proactive. He is purposefully thinking about his win win rate, so to speak, when it comes to endorsements. Do we have evidence that that's how he sees this process, that he thinks about it in terms of like, oh, will I have, you know, a 95% win rate or something like that? We have, I think, a lot of indirect evidence. I don't think he's ever come out and said, yeah, I endorse people because they're going to win. Although maybe he's come close, actually, in some cases, because he does kind of tout their polling numbers a lot. But so, for example, a lot of the candidates who have, like, vied to get Trump's endorsement have, like, been releasing internal polls that say that they're winning or say that they would win if Trump endorsed him and, and that would put them over the top. So, for example, in Ohio, where Trump just endorsed J.D. Vance, um, Josh Mandel, one of the other Republican candidates, put out a poll to try to stop that that showed specifically if Trump endorses Mandel, Mandel will win by it was something like 10 or 15 points. And if Trump endorses Vance, Vance will still be in third place or whatever. And so clearly, The Republican campaigns who are trying to get Trump's endorsements do believe that winning is important. We've also seen him kind of famously a couple of weeks ago withdraw the endorsement of Representative Mo Brooks, who's now running for Senate in Alabama. Trump claimed that this was because he started to go soft on the big lie. He said that people should put the 2020 election behind them. But of course, the the main thing that has changed since Trump endorsed Brooks is that he went from leading in the polls to now he's in third place. And beyond that, we just have lots of evidence of Trump that Trump cares about his win rate. So like 
after every primary, basically, after certainly after the Texas primary, that's the only primary so far this year, he put out a statement that bragged about everybody he endorsed won, conveniently ignoring the fact that five of the candidates he endorsed were forced into runoffs and haven't won or lost yet. But yeah, you know, I think that you can very easily read between the lines and and see that he does care about his win rate. His motivations are pretty obvious, too. There's been, you know, this kind of weird rhetoric around the question of whether Trump's grip on the Republican Party is slipping at all. I, I personally don't buy it. I think that's like wishful thinking from people who don't like Trump. But him sort of solidifying his influence in this way by pointing to all of these, you know, his kingmaker abilities and, and all of these races where he endorsed the person who went on to win is just going to give him more fodder to be like, look how important and influential I, I remain within this party. Yeah, that's a great point, Keely. His win rate is more important than ever because when he was president, he was still president, even if some of the candidates he endorsed lost. But now he is in this politically precarious position where if his, say, Worst case scenario for him is maybe only 30% of his candidates, endorsed candidates, win or something like that. That would clearly be evidence and would be interpreted by the media as such that he has lost his grip on Republican rank and file voters and his influence there. Whereas if 90% of his candidates win again, then that is perhaps a flawed, but it is a statistic you can point to that says that he still has the influence. One thing I've been thinking about kind of skeptically is... This point that Nathaniel's made that we have seen in terms of a change in Trump's endorsement strategy, you know, betting on candidates who are likely to win, is to what extent that gives him cover on some of these riskier endorsements. And so what I'm thinking about is like a great example of this is the GOP primary races in Georgia. So, you know, Trump has come out in support of former Senator David Perdue to take on Governor Brian Kemp. Kemp is leading in the polls. He's doing well. Yet, you know, Trump's PAC, that's the first race that they poured money into. And then the flip side, you know, in the Secretary of State races, which we'll talk about more and how Trump is, you know, putting his thumb on those races, which is highly unusual for a former president. But it looks like the Trump endorsed candidate there, Rice, might defeat the incumbent, uh, Raffensperger, who, you know, made headlines back in 2020 for refusing to, you know, find extra votes in the Georgia election and then has kind of gone on, probably pariah is too strong of a word, but not necessarily endeared himself to GOP members in the state for party politics. So you could have have a state's primary that points in two very different directions. And I do think, as Nathaniel's getting at, his win rate matters more than it did when he was president, because it is this question of his continued presence in the party. And I do think Trump, he's always, you know, to the haters and losers and winners, he cares about winning. He's not always done it in a very uh, professional manner, but I think that's core to his brand and identity. And so I am curious to the extent he pads his record to kind of compensate for maybe some of these riskier endorsements that will point in different directions. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not only the media that's paying attention, but potential 2024 Republican presidential primary rivals who are probably going to be looking at that data, too, to figure out how much leeway they have with Republican voters when it comes time to vote again. One question I do have in all of this is there's still a lot of endorsements that he's made that are candidates who may well lose. You know, David Perdue is one example, but his two most recent endorsements, Mehmet Oz and J.D. Vance, are another two examples of people who are certainly not guaranteed to win their primary. When he is endorsing these candidates who may well lose, what sets them apart? Why are they attracting his attention? A lot of them are, not surprisingly, they're just kind of Trumpier than the alternatives. They 
are, you would call it maybe less politically correct. They're more willing to break norms. They're more willing to support the big lie, which I'm sure we'll talk about. In many cases, they are going up against enemies Trump has made within the party. So Sarah coined this great phrase, the petty primary, where Trump is endorsing against people like Lisa Murkowski, who voted to convict him. He's endorsed against, I believe, all but one or, or maybe two of the House members who voted to impeach him. So he's clearly, I think, trying to the extent that he's actually putting his reputation on the line, he's trying to do it to purge the party of his enemies. And on the point you made, Galen, about potential 2024 contenders taking notice, I think an interesting senator to watch is Cruz. So in the Ohio race, he hasn't as much endorsed Mandel, but I guess it isn't essentially an endorsement. He's done a campaign ad saying like, here's why you need to vote for Mandel. So it's interesting to see to what extent there'll be kind of a split between Cruz and Trump in terms of endorsements moving forward. And then I believe Governor Hogan in Maryland has also made a few endorsements. And I can't name any at the at the moment, but trying to see which other parts of the party will like lay claim to candidates will be interesting. Yeah. You mentioned that Nathaniel, he was endorsing people specifically who support the big lie. You actually crunched the numbers on that, sort of the percentage of his endorsees who believe the big lie. Was it, or have, you know, given voice to it? Was it 80%? Uh, I don't know the exact number, but it was between 70 and 80. I have the numerator and the denominator, which I should give credit to our intern, Jean Yi, who was the one who researched and calculated this. So Jean has found at least 78 Republican candidates that Trump has endorsed for Senate, House, Governor, as we said, but also for Attorney General and Secretary of State, because those offices, if elected, they will have actual power over kind of enforcement of election results and things like that. So 78 out of 109 candidates for that, uh, for those offices. So let me whip out my calculator and do the math, Galen. You can't do that in your head, Nathaniel, come on. I know, sorry. 72%. So obviously the big lie is is definitely, I think, a major consideration. As we saw with the Brooks uh, endorsement, that may not have been the reason he withdrew his endorsement of Brooks, but it was the stated reason. And I think, again, that's another thing that it's very clear from the way that candidates are behaving, that they feel like they need to agree with the idea that the 2020 election was stolen in order to get Trump's endorsement. And you mentioned that he is endorsing attorney general candidates and even elections officials who aren't even as high profile as attorney general. Kaylee, you recently did some reporting on what happens or what can happen when elections officials believe the big lie. What's at stake in all of that? This, I really think, is important because of just how many candidates, regardless of Trump's endorsement or not, how many candidates we're seeing running for offices, large and small, that are specifically have authority over elections who believe the big lie. And it's scary because they do have quite a lot of power and authority to overturn election results or to question them or to, you know, they have access to secure election offices, to secure election equipment where the records are kept, where the ballots are kept. They have access to all that in a way that, you know, even other elected officials wouldn't have. And so they have a lot of sway and power over the actual running of the elections, the tabulation of the elections and, and the, the results. So it's not a small thing. Like these are the, the sort of beating heart of democracy. They're, they're making the machine run and sort of historically have been kind of boring, 
even if they're a, a partisan election, like you know, fairly nonpartisan roles. You know, we're talking about like county clerk and recorders where running elections, making it go smoothly is part of their job, but they also like run the DMV and, and you know, make sure that those offices are open and functioning properly. Like that's typically the kind of bureaucratic position that it, it was. And it's now becoming much more partisan and having kind of ideologues running for these positions and, and potentially winning. Yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that, Kaylee in just a minute. But closing out our endorsement tracker for today, as I mentioned, Trump recently endorsed J.D. Vance and Mehmet Oz in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Those are two of the, they may be the most high profile, really competitive Senate primaries for Republicans in the country. They're not all that interesting, I guess, on the Democratic side. Why did he endorse, you know, like, as far as Trumpy candidates go, if that's the adjective we want to use, probably a Trumpy candidate's going to win either way. Why really go in there and endorse two candidates who at the moment aren't actually even leading in the polls? Well, I think that's debatable about Oz in Pennsylvania. He's at least a co-leader. But yeah, I did find those two endorsements rather puzzling. They don't necessarily fit into the pattern elsewhere. So in Ohio, you've had a uh, Republican primary where the candidates have really been kind of climbing all over each other to say the Trumpiest thing, the most outrageous thing. So J.D. Vance had an ad where he pointed at the camera and asked, are you a racist? Do you hate Mexicans? And obviously with the expectation that people would say no. So like in that race, there would have been any number of candidates, including Vance, I think, who you know would have fit the the Trumpy mold for him. And so why would he go out of his way to endorse the third or fourth place polling person right now when he could just stay out of it? That was kind of odd. And then in Pennsylvania, it's actually interesting because Oz and then his main competitor, David McCormick, they both have pretty weak Republican credentials. They, in the past, have espoused some pretty moderate, if not outright liberal views. So Oz has been pro-choice in the past. McCormick, I think, was reportedly considering running for office as a Democrat a few years back. And so maybe Trump saw more of a kindred spirit in Oz, who's like kind of a TV personality. I think they have a friendship. And so maybe that was the difference maker there. But it's also not very clear to me that Oz will be super Trumpy in the Senate, but maybe now he will be. And maybe because they're both television personalities and maybe don't have a lot of political experience slash principle to kind of build on, now he'll toe the Trump line in the Senate if he wins. I think there's an argument to be made for Oz, Vance, and Palin, as Nathaniel was getting out with Oz in particular, of kind of being that celebrity candidate, which at least when you read the anonymous sourcing we all came to know from the Trump era, when people are kind of parsing out, well, what are advisors telling him? What is he doing? There does seem to be in that reporting, you know, a real sign among Trump that he just likes those kind of candidates. I'm not sure it's more complicated beyond that. You know, and polling in both primaries, right, have not put Vance or Oz in the lead necessarily, though I would caution, you know, a lot of those are internal polls released by campaigns. And so it can be really, really challenging in a primary as well to kind of understand what the lay of the land actually looks like. Yeah, that's a great point, Sarah. All right. Well, we will see what happens. Ohio is actually one of the first primaries on the calendar. May 3rd. So we will be back here two weeks from now talking about that race. I mentioned that, Kaylee, you've been doing reporting on what happens when big lie true believers are responsible for administering elections. You recently wrote a piece about one specific 
case in Colorado. So let's have you stick around for a minute and tell me a little more about that. And we're going to say goodbye to Sarah and Nathaniel. So thank you to both of you. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Kaylin. Kaylee, you went recently to Mesa County, Colorado to report on the case of the county clerk there, Tina Peters, who is facing seven felony charges for allegedly using a false identity and lying to state employees while allowing an unauthorized individual to make copies of the election equipment hard drive. That's just like a crazy sentence that I just read. What happened? Tina Peters is the county clerk and recorder in Mesa County, Colorado. She was elected in 2018. And she recently was indicted on 10 counts. What she has told me and spoken publicly about is that she made backups of the hard drives of the election equipment in Mesa County. In this case, it was ballot tabulation machines. She made a copy before and after what's called a trusted build, which is basically like an update of the software on the machines that's done with the Secretary of State and Dominion, who is the manufacturer of the machines. And she says that she did this to compare and contrast before and after and see if that update did anything to the election records because she had concerns that it was going to delete files or, or that something could be going wrong. She says that she has evidence now that that is indeed what happened, the reports that she's produced, you know, I've had experts look at them. They disagree. They don't say that it shows much of anything. And unfortunately, the way that she went about it led to these charges where they, you know, they've alleged that she did things improperly. Okay, so there's several layers here. What's Tina Peters' ideology that sort of led her to make these copies of the hard drives, which ultimately ended up on the internet? Right. So... Tina Peters does believe that there was election fraud in 2020, and she has believed this at least since January of 2021. She tweeted from a personal account at that time some conspiracy theory-sounding language and saying that, you know, the machines can be hacked and altered and things like that. She told me that she really sort of started to question things after a local city council race there went not as she expected. The candidates that she thought would win didn't win. Other people who were familiar with local politics told me the results were not particularly surprising. And she didn't actually see any evidence of fraud. She just didn't really agree with the outcome of the election. So that made her concerned. And, and she had these concerns that there, there was something going on which sort of motivated her to act. We know that in the summer last year, Videos and stills from a video images were leaked online by Ron Watkins, who is the former administrator of the website called Acoon, which is where Q of QAnon used to post all the time. And a lot of people think that Mr. Watkins is Q or was Q for part of that period of time. He posted these images and, and videos online on his Telegram account. And when they were posted... Wait, of what? Uh, so it was like, if you were looking at the voting machine and you were in the administrator panel. So basically, like, you were now accessing, like, the back end of it, and you were able to access the setup and everything to set up the machine. And then someone was recording on their phone of that screen. That was the video, and there were stills from that video as well that he posted. And so because you could see this administrator panel, there were also passwords visible. And somebody in the Secretary of State's office in Colorado saw these images, recognized the passwords, and said, those are our passwords, and we only use them in one place, and it's Mesa County. So that was how it first sort of made the connection, and that's when an investigation started. Did Peters or anyone affiliated with her tamper with the equipment in a way that could change results? 
And just broadly, sort of how did these actions allegedly make Mesa County elections vulnerable? So all of the election equipment in Mesa County was decertified by the Secretary of State because when they investigated, they found that basically it had been compromised. So whatever had happened to them had compromised them. They could not certify them as secure anymore, and they had to be replaced. And this came at great expense to the county. There are allegations laid out in the indictment against her, and Ms. Peters would only tell me so much. Basically, she told me she she wanted to get into details of what exactly took place when she made these backups because of the criminal investigation. But according to the indictment, what's alleged is that she helped bring in somebody who used a fake ID to access the building in order to make those copies for her. And somehow those copies also made their way to Ron Watkins because he posted the data from the hard drives online as well. Okay, so that's its own elections meddling complexity, which the criminal justice system will determine in Colorado. When it comes to what motivated Peters to do this in the first place, which is believing that Mesa County elections were fraudulent, did she, through this process, uncover any fraud in Mesa County? No. And she's not actually even claimed that she has uncovered any fraud. The most claims she's made is that the update that was done to the machines somehow deleted files that would be necessary to do a forensic audit. Like I said, the experts I spoke to him from my own review of the reports, I don't believe that that's the case. All of the actual election data is backed up prior to an update. And besides the fact Colorado is largely mail-in voting, it uses hand-marked paper ballots, they keep those ballots. If you want to do an audit, you can recount the ballots. You don't really need the machines to, to do anything. So now Peters, who's a Republican, is running for Secretary of State of Colorado. What has the response been like from the Republican Party and Republican voters in the state? So Peters was running for re-election, and then earlier this year she decided to instead run for Secretary of State. So that's what she's running for now, and she has good support from the Republicans locally as well as, as in the state. She was just at the Republican Assembly for the state of Colorado and got 60% of the vote to put her name on the ballot for the primary for Secretary of State. She's well-supported. She's well-liked, at least within the party. So wait, does this suggest that Tina Peters is actually likely to be the Republican nominee for Secretary of State in the general election? I don't think that's likely. There's another candidate, Pam Anderson, who is also getting a lot of support uh, as kind of a more mainstream Republican candidate for Secretary of State. And, you know, the assemblies tend to attract the most hardline, sort of kind of more fringy, extreme voters tend to go to the assembly and actually vote at that point. But when it goes to the whole state and you have all Republicans voting in the primary, I think it's likely that Peters won't actually be the candidate at the end of the day. But anything's possible. And you actually talked to Republicans who felt like this whole bit had gone too far. I spoke to the Mesa County GOP chair who told me that it's been very challenging because it's caused infighting among the party between people who back Peters and think that she's a hero and that, you know, there was widespread fraud and she's going to help expose it. And people who think this was out of line, this was beyond what you're supposed to be doing. And, you know, we need to focus on, on moving forward and not on some of these more extreme members of the party 
who are, you know, believe the big lie and continue to tout it. And so it's caused this infighting that's been really challenging for local Republicans. A lot of people do really support her and are enthusiastic about her. And she has the support of kind of big figures within that circle of sort of more Trumpy wing of the party with Mike Lindell, the MyPillow CEO, had her at his cyber symposium when this was all going down. You know, he's been a big supporter of her. Steve Bannon talks about her frequently on his podcast. So she's become kind of a bit of a folk hero. A cause celeb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you see signs of more Tina Peterses in the future? You know, this story is kind of wild, and you can read about it on our site. There's all kinds of other things that we couldn't even get into with the alleged stolen identity and... She, you know, was arrested in a bagel shop and kicked a cop. And there's all kinds of things that I can't get into in, you know, a short amount of time. Um, but you buried the, the lead there, though. <laughs> the importance of this story is not sort of the salaciousness or whatever, the drama of Tina Peters' right. saga. It's it's that this is possibly a preview. And these officials who I think we kind of took for granted as like these boring bureaucratic roles that just keep things moving smoothly – could be in jeopardy as we see more people like Peters who believe in this big lie getting now the keys to the kingdom and being able to wreak all kinds of havoc. Like I said, this is going to cost a lot of money to the county. It already did. It cost them, according to one county commissioner, more than a million dollars to replace all the equipment. They had to hire people to take over for Peters because she was stripped of her duties by the secretary of state. They've had to put in all kinds of additional protocols to try to convince people that there's nothing wrong with the vote. So they had a rival ballot counting machine company come in and recount the ballots after the Dominion machines did it to prove that there was no discrepancy. And then they also did a hand count on top of that, which is time consuming and, and costly. And yet there's still people that think that there was something fishy going along and they don't have any faith in the election because of what they saw Peters do. They thought she must have been onto something. And so that's, you know, this is what we might be facing across the country if more and more people like this are given that authority and that power. All right. Well, of course, this is one of the many things we'll be tracking over the upcoming primary season, uh, the types of candidates who are winning these races for elections officials. But let's leave it there for now. Thank you so much, Kaylee. Thanks for having me. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bidigoy Curtis is on audio editing. Anna Rothschild is on video editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>